All right, well, good evening, Praxis. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. Tonight, we'll be continuing our series by looking at Ecclesiastes chapter one, verses 12 to 13, verses 12 to 13. Last week, Pastor Allen kicked us off by introducing the book of Ecclesiastes. And he talked about how Ecclesiastes is a bit of an outlier in the Bible. And certainly if you've read Ecclesiastes before, or if you were here with us last week, you know what he means. In a way, the book of Ecclesiastes, along with the book of Job, they serve as the exception to the rule compared to a text like the book of Proverbs. On the one hand, Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. See that in Proverbs 1, verse 7, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And Proverbs emphasizes this attitude of fearing the Lord and pursuing his ways of wisdom as the foundational posture one must have to live successfully and happily in God's world. In Proverbs 10 to 31, we are given these specific maxims and these pithy sayings that show us how to live in all areas of life. These Proverbs, they describe that when we carry out certain attitudes and actions in the fear of the Lord, we should expect to reap certain results, certain happy results, long life, a happy family, monetary and career success, and so on. On the other hand, Ecclesiastes and Job, they keep it real with us. They acknowledge that things don't always work that way in a fallen world. You can work hard, you can be smart with your finances, you can make good choices, and one day, as in Job's experience, God can take it all away. Or in Solomon's experience, you can come to the realization that none of it lasts forever or provides ultimate fulfillment. So we face two extremes that we want to avoid when we think about the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. On the one hand, after we read Proverbs, we want to be careful of thinking that there is this direct one-to-one correspondence between good actions and good outcomes. On the other hand, we want to be careful of thinking that nothing we do or how we do it matters at all. And this is the attitude we want to be careful of walking away with after reading Ecclesiastes. Instead, we ought to have a nuanced attitude that retains the tension that we see scripture present. For Ecclesiastes especially, it is extremely easy to misinterpret the book. And it can be dangerous if we misunderstand what the author is trying to say. And this is where it is helpful to go actually to the end of the book for some guidance. Sometimes it's better to start at the end of a story in order to understand the beginning or the middle of it. Kind of like when you were doing chemistry or calculus homework back in college or high school, right? Sometimes it's helpful and it's okay to go to the back of the book for the answers to guide you in better understanding the material. And so we have to remember that we are going on this journey with the author of Ecclesiastes. In last week's study, we saw in chapter one, verse two, that the author presents his thesis to us. And he says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so we talked about how this word does not mean meaningless as the NIV translates it, but it means vapor or breath to emphasize the temporary nature of life and all that life has to offer us. And so for the rest of the book, we are essentially reading the author's research log as he tests these different ideas to see if they support his thesis that all is vanity. And so this this means that we have to be careful, we have to be mindful of what he says, and that what he says is not always the final word. And it's not until the end of the book that we really see the conclusion at which he arrives. And the conclusion he arrives at, again, is not that everything is meaningless. Instead, 
This is what he says in chapter 12. Turn there. In chapter 12, verse one, he says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Then in verse 13 of chapter 12, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So when we look at the answer key of the book of Ecclesiastes, we see that the preacher is like a man who is goading us. He's shouting a life that is not centered around and built upon serving God is meaningless. He says, remember the creator in the days of your youth. So you can take that as he's preaching this, he's writing this to young people. And he's saying, guys, I've tried it. I've tried everything and trust me on this one. He's sending a warning to us. Kind of like when I was a kid and you guys might have had this too, that we had like a drug awareness week where they would have maybe like an ex-prisoner or like an ex-drug user, right? Who stopped using drugs, right? They, they would come in and they would talk to us and they would tell us, right? Don't make the same mistakes that I did. Telling us that they had been there, they had done that and it wasn't worth it. And so the author is trying to save us the grief of investing too much of our hope in the stock of this world, a stock that is destined to crash and which will eventually crush us when it does. Instead, he is telling us to invest in what truly lasts and what is truly fulfilling. And he's saying that what really counts, what really counts is not the things of this life or the things of this world in and of themselves, even though they are good, right? How much money you make, your occupation, what school you went to, how many degrees you have, how much you think you know, how good looking you think you are, how much you can lift at the gym, how many friends you had and how many awesome things you got to do and places you got to travel. Yes, as we will see later in Ecclesiastes, the author being consistent with the rest of the Bible thinks that these things are good, right? Creation is good and it should be cherished and it should be enjoyed. However, he is desperate to remind us more than anything that we were not made to find our ultimate joy and fulfillment and identity and purpose in these things. We weren't purposed to find ultimate meaning in them. They are not the end of the matter. Instead, the preacher concludes in verse 13, the end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. He says, this is what we were made for. This is our purpose and our joy to know and love God and to keep his commandments. This is what a fulfilling life looks like. As the Westminster Confession of Faith famously says in its first question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is our destiny. That's what we were made for. That's who we were made for. And so the author, he's recounting to us in a very personal and raw way throughout the entire book, what it was like for him to go searching restlessly for meaning, fulfillment, happiness, purpose in all of the wrong places. And as we jump into our passage, we are jumping into this new and exciting section of the book where Solomon is not just giving us his theory now and, and these abstract thoughts of philosophy, 
He's going to give us a firsthand account of the journey that he took in all the places he looked to find fulfillment. And he starts, of all places, with the workplace and the university. Let's read our passage together. Ecclesiastes chapter one, starting in verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So just jumping into things, just as a recap, we see in verse 12 that Kohelet, the preacher, says he has been king over Jerusalem, or sorry, over Israel in Jerusalem. And so this gives us only three options for authorship, just in case you weren't here last week or just in case you need some refreshments. Saul, David, or Solomon are our only options because only these three kings can say that they ruled over Israel in reference to the united monarchy. After Solomon, the kingdom, as some of you know, was split into two, the north, which would be Israel, and the south, which would be Judah, which is where Jerusalem was located. And as will become more evident in the coming weeks and months, Solomon seems to fit the description of the author. And I think we'll especially see that next week when we cover chapter two. Then in verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. In other words, Solomon decided that he was going to get to the bottom of this, this whole conundrum called life, and especially daily life and work and occupation during, on, or sorry, during our time on earth, answering questions like, what's the point of all of this? What is the gain that comes from our existence and all of our toil on this earth? Does human work and achievement have any lasting value? Some of you have heard, right? We have 24 hours in a day, eight hours is spent sleeping, eight hours is spent doing whatever you want, having free time, and eight hours is spent working. So one third of your life is spent working. So Solomon is saying, we do a lot of this. This is a huge chunk of our life. What value does it have? Is there any lasting value in this? So he says to research this, to understand this, he applies his heart to answering this question, these questions. He applies his heart. Another way to phrase it in the Hebrew is to say that he sets his mind on it, on this task. The two verbs there, to seek and to search, they provide us an example of what is called verbal hendiadis. And this basically means that the two words are synonyms. They're two similar words and they're used to emphasize a common idea. This verb for seek, it means to inquire about, it means to investigate, to search out and to study. The verb is used literally of the physical activity of investigating a matter by examining the physical evidence of something and interviewing eyewitnesses. It's also used figuratively of mentally investigating certain concepts. And similarly, the verb for search means to seek out, it means to discover. And it's used literally of the physical action of exploring physical territory. Figuratively, it can mean to mentally explore things. And so in this case, these verbs, they're paired together to emphasize that Solomon did these things. He searched things out in this way, went all about and talked to 
many people of all different trades to investigate this matter and to come to the bottom of it. Then it says he did so by wisdom, by wisdom. This word for wisdom here is hokmah, hokmah in the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew Bible, it can be used to refer to a spiritual, pious type of wisdom that most of us are familiar with. And this involves, as I mentioned, the fear of the Lord, which can only come from God. On the other hand, this word hokmah, it can simply refer to skill, skill in technical matters, for example. It can refer to skill like experience or competency in political matters. In other words, it doesn't just refer to book knowledge or head knowledge, but it involves having an aptitude or a skill to apply such knowledge and principles in real life situations. And we see in 1 Kings 3 to 4, we'll look, at the, we'll look there in a little bit, that God gives Solomon insight. He gives Solomon skill in all matters of life, both spiritual and earthly. In other words, Solomon was the most competent and knowledgeable man alive. And in verse 13, he says that he used these abilities to examine and assess work. And we can imagine that he was going to use everything at his disposal as king. He was going to get an answer to his question. He says he is going to search out all that is done under heaven. In other words, he was going to look at all the tasks humans set out to do in their lives. Perhaps this included observing and talking to architects, businessmen, investors, builders, farmers, woodworkers, philosophers, accountants, ancient doctors, nannies, housewives, judges, lawyers, you name it. It could also involve talking to philosophers, reading books that were available to him. And he wanted to see what lasting value does human work, human toil and achievement yield if any, and the results, the results are not satisfying. Look at verse 13, at the end of verse 13. He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The phrase unhappy business, it's only used in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the Hebrew noun for business can refer to a task. It can refer to an occupation or an affair. The verse can also be rendered, it is a burdensome task, a miserable task, a heavy burden that God has given to mankind to keep them occupied. Then in verse 14, he says that it is all vanity and a striving after wind. That word vanity, as you recall from last week, and as I explained, it's the word hevel in Hebrew. And it doesn't mean meaningless, but quite literally it means vapor or breath. And this provides us this picture of temporality. I think Alan explained, or you'll hear it explained elsewhere, that it's this idea of a warm breath on a cold morning. It's there for a second and then it vanishes. And then we get this important and famous phrase, striving after wind. This is the first time Solomon uses the phrase and it or something similar to it occurs in Ecclesiastes about 11 to 12 times. And as you can close your eyes and imagine, it provides us this vivid imagery of someone trying to catch the wind. This word for striving can also mean to shepherd or to herd which provides this imagery of someone trying to herd the wind. And when we think of such an image, we should naturally be inclined to laugh because we all know it's foolish and it's a vain errand for someone to try to catch the wind. This is of course, because you can't even see the wind or where it's going. And if you do feel it and are somehow able to grasp it, it slips right out of your hand in an instant. It's therefore futile and profitless to try and catch it. And what Solomon is doing is he is applying this imagery to work. 
He's saying that despite everything that man has accomplished in history, whether in someone's personal life or whether as a whole, despite all of the work we do, there's no end to it. And finally, in verse 15, he provides an example, an explanation as to why he says, this is striving after the wind, why work is futile. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. So what is he talking about here? Well, it seems like he's referring to the fact that when it comes to the work we do on this earth, no matter what task, we are always going to have a problem to fix. Whether it's doing stuff at home, like the dishes, taking out the trash, doing the laundry, cleaning, or whether it's here at church or at work, there are always going to be problems popping up and it's burdensome. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many times you solve a problem, either the same problem or a new one will come up. It is never ending. As some of you know, uh, well, Julie mentioned it, right? She works in the medical field as a doctor. And she says pretty much every time she goes into work, she'll look out in the waiting room and there will be anywhere from 30 to 60 people waiting at a time. Sometimes waiting for two to three hours, maybe more. And no matter how fast she goes, no matter how many patients she sees, there will be a new batch in the waiting room the next day. No matter what job you do, right, this is the case. If you're a human being on this earth, this will be the case. There will always be more sick people to see, more tables to clean, more bugs to fix in the software, more laundry to do, more diapers to change, more angry and upset people to deal with. Even when you fix something and you work your hardest to do your job perfectly, you'll still have to wake up the next morning and do it all over again. Things go wrong in this fallen and broken world. That's just the way things are. And Solomon is saying, if you think, if you just work hard enough and you put in enough hours that you can fix everything at your job and make your boss and your customers happy forever, and that one day, once and for all, all your problems at work will be solved, then you are a fool who is trying to chase the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. There's an old story in uh, Greek mythology about a man named Sisyphus. In the story, Sisyphus is condemned by the gods to roll a giant rock to the top of a mountain, only to have that rock roll back down every time he reaches the top. And he was condemned to do this for eternity. And you might feel like this is you. Every time Sunday evening rolls around, you start to get the Sunday scaries. And this feeling of dread and darkness, it washes over you as you realize you have to go into work the next day. I remember when I used to work in insurance, this would happen to me literally in the middle of playing volleyball on Sunday nights. Right as I'm about to take a Sean Lynn jump serve to the face and then eventually get blocked by Pastor Kelly just to really rub salt in the wound. But in all seriousness, some of you know what I'm talking about. It'd be weird if you didn't know what I was talking about if you've worked for more than a year or two. You think about just this endless cycle of your job and this terrible feeling of having your alarm go off in the morning. Then you have to sit in traffic for an hour just to get to work. And then you're tired there and you're stressed and you can't wait to get home. Then you get home and you're tired and you realize you have to do it again the next day and the next day and the next day for the next 40, 50 years of your life. You work so hard to get your boss to like you. You work so hard to get your resume built up and to get a promotion. You go to work and you work so hard to be the best at what you do. You fix something and you feel accomplished like you conquered the world. 
But then another problem comes up. Another promotion comes up. You get a small comment on the project you committed your heart and your soul to for the last year. But it's not enough. It's not the recognition you were hoping for or expecting. You were hoping for more. And so it's on to the next assignment. So you work hard again to get that dopamine hit from the approval and respect from others or to get the pleasure from that pay raise. And it's like an endless cycle of whack-a-mole. It's rolling the giant boulder up the hill just to watch it roll back down where you have to start all over again. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. So where do we find hope in this? What is Solomon's point in bringing this up? just to make us depressed right, about our jobs? No, he's not trying to say that work is bad or meaningless or unfulfilling. In fact, we'll see later in chapter two, when Solomon returns to this topic of human occupation, he says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. He says, this also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. So work and achievement and enjoying the fruit of one's labor has great meaning and great fulfillment. And it's not that we shouldn't work hard and enjoy the fruit of our labor. Instead, Solomon is trying to show us that we were made for so much more than work. It was never meant to provide lasting and ultimate fulfillment. He's saying, you may have these things for a while that you get from work and you should cherish them as good gifts from God, but recognize they don't last forever. And the quicker you can accept that, the easier it will be for you. And for us at this church, in our context, where many of you are successful and skillful at what you do, at least compared to the rest of the world, this can be a danger. Solomon is saying we must look to something more rewarding and more fulfilling that looks beyond the temporary and fleeting pleasures of this life. He's saying we have to find some deeper meaning in our work under the sun that looks above the sun to our creator and the one for whom we work. We can gain everything we have always dreamed of when it comes to our career. But Solomon is saying it will still leave you empty if you take God out of the picture. Because who cares, right? You'll die one day and most likely no one will remember your work. What matters is whether or not you kept God at the center of your heart and soul and did everything to serve him. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul? In Jeremiah nine, Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So God says that this is what truly matters. This is what leaves a legacy for eternity. Whether or not you served God and others at work, whether or not you were a good witness for him at work. We find joy and pride, not in ourselves and our capabilities, which are God-given anyway. We find pride not in our riches or work or accolades, but we find joy and pride in knowing God and working for him. Knowing that he sees our toil, he sees our labor, 
and he cares for us and that our work for him in this fallen world is not in vain. Solomon says that work is good, but like everything else in this life, it is a breath. It is heaven on a cold morning that appears for an instant, then vanishes. It is like trying to grasp the wind. You have it and then you don't. The only worthwhile and fulfilling thing that lasts is knowing, loving, cherishing, and serving God in our work. So we don't cut corners. We don't lie or cheat and justify it so we can make a great legacy for ourselves on this earth. Because only one legacy will truly last. And it is an eternal legacy that is in our service to Christ in our neighbors at our work. And this reminds me of a famous poem written by a British missionary to China and his name was C.T. Studd, C.T. Studd. And the title of the poem is Only One Life. And it goes like this. He says, two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So now we come to the second section of the passage in verse 16. In the first section, Solomon, he highlights the burden and futility of work. And in this section, point number two on your notes, verses 16 to 18, Solomon talks about the burden and futility of education, which are related as we know. He starts by saying in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. We've talked about this already, but Solomon was the smartest man alive, perhaps the smartest man in history up until this point. And he's essentially saying that he decided at one point that he was going to go to college. He was gonna get every degree possible. He was gonna learn as much as he could. And so turn with me to 1 Kings chapter four. 1 Kings chapter four. Uh, it's gonna be to the left of Ecclesiastes. 1 Kings chapter four, looking at verses 29, excuse me, 29 to 34. 1 Kings chapter four, verses 29 to 34. It says, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs or wise sayings and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. You can turn back to Ecclesiastes. So Solomon basically, right, he's, he's a Nobel Peace Prize Fields Medal winner, 
right? He's a Harvard valedictorian, Einstein, Aristotle, all wrapped into one. And notice how it says that he had understanding beyond all measure. He had breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, essentially saying that his understanding, his knowledge was infinite. It was uncountable. And it says his wisdom surpassed all the people in the East. He was wiser than all other men. And I think it's interesting in verse 34, it says, all people came to see him. Some people travel from all over the world to see people like Steph Curry, right? Lionel Messi, people travel from all over to to go see Taylor Swift. Well, Solomon was so smart and so amazing that people would come from all over just to hear him drop knowledge. And, And I feel like, you know, if you make, if you can get people to come and hear you just like talk about math or something, like that's like, you must be really good at math or you just must be really smart and amazing because I would not want to go do that. But in verse 17, it's interesting. He says, he also sought madness and folly. This is back in Ecclesiastes chapter one. In other words, he also studied foolish behavior. He studied foolish ideas. He studied the idea of a life of indulgent self-pleasures. He studied foolish thinking. And he found that this is also unsatisfactory. It's not fulfilling. And it's important to point out that that doesn't mean wisdom and folly, like Solomon's not saying wisdom and folly are equally vain. Later in chapter two, verse 13, he'll say that wisdom is still better than foolishness. If you want more references, chapter seven, verse 11 and 12 and 19, chapter nine, verse 18, chapter 10, verse 10, He says that wisdom is still better than foolishness, but he wanted to see if either one had lasting value. And we'll see in in chapter two next week, him exploring foolishness, foolish pleasures of, well, well, we'll talk about it later. And even though wisdom is better, he says at the end of verse 17, that knowledge is but a striving after the wind. It also is temporary and fleeting in and of itself. In other words, he's saying, who cares if you know a lot? Who cares if you know how to send a satellite to space, design a building, sew someone up? Who cares if you have the knowledge and foresight to invest in the next big company? Sure, this type of skill and wisdom is better to have than not. It's useful, it's good, it's a gift from God, but like everything else, it's not exhaustive or permanent. Like everything else, this knowledge is striving after the wind. Just think about it. You'll always be limited in your knowledge. Someone will always know more than you. You will often forget things you learned. And guess what? Even if you know a lot of things, even if you know everything, that's great. But just like the wind, he's saying you can't keep it. It's not lasting. Again, one day, you'll die and you won't possess the knowledge you have any longer. Some of you might pride yourself on your education, the school you went to, the knowledge you gained and possess about whatever it might be, especially related to your profession. You might pride yourself on research you did for a renowned professor, maybe a journal article you wrote, an award you won, a thesis you wrote, how airtight your logic and argumentation skills are. And growing up, I'm sure the importance of education was ingrained in many of you, either by your parents or your peers, the people you grew up around. You probably felt the pressure to get a good score on the SAT. Maybe you or your parents would brag about it and jump at the chance to tell people your score. Maybe you felt the pressure to go to a good college and maybe you prided on your, yourself on that too. And you subtly look for opportunities to tell people where you went to school. And then you felt the pressure to get a good job that makes a lot of money and, and people would be impressed when you tell them what you do. Maybe you felt that once you got all of these things, 
once you checked off all of the boxes, once you got those two letters after your name, MD, JD, the pressure would finally be lifted off and you'll be happy and you'll be fulfilled. But Solomon is saying nothing can be further from the truth. He's saying, I'm smarter than you. I've achieved more than you. I've reached the peak. I've graduated at the top of my class. I've gotten the PhD. I've gotten the tenure track position. I've won all the awards, all the medals. I'm the most respected in my field, in every field. And guess what? It's still not enough. It's striving after the wind. You work so hard to get it. It's agonizing to get it. And when you finally get it, you feel it for a split second, right? That pure satisfaction, that pure pleasure, but then it slips right out of your hands. I think one of the things I don't miss about college is the many professors and the many researchers on campus who, to put it bluntly, just not pleasant people. Um, I went to USC for my first two years of college, as some of you know, and I took a lot of GEs and STEM and humanities. And I always felt like my professors, and, and even like in high school, I felt this too. I, I didn't go, yeah, I, I went to a public high school and always felt like my professors, my, my TAs, I feel like they always had a chip on their shoulder or an ax to grind with the students. I felt like they weren't for me, but they were against me. Maybe that was just me. And of course there were really nice professors and TAs, but many just seemed irritable, right? And, and I was afraid to even ask them a question sometimes because I was afraid it would, like they would know my name now and it would put a target on my back and it would just make them angry. And I think many are like that in academia because their work in academia is their life. It's what they build their entire identities on and their entire self-worth on. So they're always pent up and frustrated because they're part of this rat race to get to the top. Or if they're at the top, they're afraid that someone new or, or better will come and knock them down. And I think the most interesting thing was when I became a Christian, I, I transferred to a Christian college and I immediately saw this night and day difference in the professors. These professors were the nicest educators I had ever had. They would pray for us and they would show us grace, sometimes too much grace with assignments and, and, and certain things because they didn't care about any of that stuff. You could talk to them and you can ask them questions without feeling afraid or, or that you would get on their bad side. And it's because as Christians, these men, they learned a long time ago that their identity and worth isn't wrapped up in their academic or career achievements. And this doesn't mean that there aren't prideful and ambitious Christian professors out there, right? There's plenty of those, but there's still a significant difference when you go into these places. And the thing is this, you're going to die, I'm going to die. And our knowledge and our work it's going to be forgotten. And even if you're someone like Plato, Aristotle, Isaac Newton, whoever, even when your work and your knowledge is still studied, still talked about, even when people talk about you, you're still seen as obsolete. You're still seen as just a stepping stone, even if a groundbreaking one for someone else who seeks to come along and top what you did and build off of what you did and be known for something more advanced. And then that groundbreaking person's knowledge will become common knowledge and they'll be seen as obsolete and they might even be laughed at for the ignorant things they believed. And on and on it goes. Knowledge, it's an elusive and temporary thing. And even when you gain it, as good as it is, in verse 18, Solomon says, it increases sorrow. He says, for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You guys all know this, the saying, ignorance is bliss, right? 
Well, that's what Solomon is saying. Sure, knowledge is great, but one, you'll never reach a point where you know everything. And two, when you gain knowledge, it only opens your eyes to greater problems and complexities. When you grow in learning, the more you realize the limitations of what you know, and you realize how much you don't know. In fact, there's this psychological phenomenon that you might've seen. You might've seen the, uh, the graph or the picture of it. And it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Someone who's like was studying a PhD in psychology told me about this, so I, I think it's correct or it's accurate. Uh, but basically this graph shows that when people first start learning, it's really interesting, when they first start learning something new, a new topic, a new subject, their confidence in how much they think they know about this field or subject, it shoots through the roof. They basically think that they are experts. And this is where on the graph it says, competency is the lowest and confidence is the highest. And this is called the peak of Mount Stupid. And if you ever know, or if you ever want to know what I'm talking about, just talk to any first year seminary student or college student who comes in bright eyed and learns all this new stuff and thinks they are the smartest person on the planet. And they've got all the answers and everyone else is wrong and stupid. And by the way, did you know that the word sophomore means wise fool? I, I didn't know that before because Apparently after your first year of college, right, or high school, you learn things and, and so you kind of have some wisdom, but you're still dangerous because you don't know how to use that knowledge and a lot of that knowledge is just not as black and white as you think, so you're also a moron, you're a fool. So that's where sophomore comes from. Anyways, what's interesting, I think, is that on the graph, as time goes on, as the person learns more, the graph shows that confidence dramatically drops. It drops from the peak to this low valley, and it's the lowest point on the graph. And this is called the valley of despair, where the learner's world is shattered, their confidence is shattered, when he or she realizes the complicated nature of the subject, and that what he or she thought was absolutely right and true is actually quite contested, and sometimes just flat out wrong. And it's not until one accepts the fact that things are not black and white, that he or she can reach what's called the plateau of sustainability. It's this plateau of sustainable learning and, and peace that you can finally have, accepting that things are complicated. So Solomon is trying to tell us that knowledge is great, but it's frustrating because we have our limits and there are things that are just complicated and we either can't know or even if we do know certain things, we wish we didn't know them because the truth is a hard pill to swallow. So if you build your happiness and purpose in life on education and knowledge, you're only going to be disappointed and depressed. It will only compound your problems. And again, Solomon is not saying work and education are pointless or meaningless but he is saying that when you take God out of the picture, they are. Your work and your intellectual abilities and academic accomplishments, they're beneficial, but they do not provide the answer to the greatest question in life. And that is, do you know God? Do you really know God? Do you love him? Do you fear God? At the very core of your being, do you make it your purpose and your whole duty, as he says at the end of Ecclesiastes, in his conclusion, to serve God every day, to fear him and keep his commandments? Is he the center of the universe for you? Or are you the center of the universe? Is he the center of the universe or is your work or your education the center. Because if you think these things are going to solve your problems, if you think they're going to solve the emptiness in your heart, it may provide satisfaction for a moment, 
but it will not last. It is striving after wind. And so after all of this, you might be thinking, well, you know, I think it's clear that Solomon's problem was that he was just a workaholic. He was just too smart for his own good. He loved work and school way too much. He just needed to get out and have some fun and maybe he would have been just fine. And to that, Solomon, Solomon has to say, trust me, I've tried that too. Not only did I reach the peak academically and vocationally, but I reached the peak socially and romantically. I've partied and had more fun than anybody. I've had the best Michelin star food. I've had the most beautiful women. I've had the most expensive alcohol and parties. I've tested and examined what a life of unhindered pleasure is like. And after all that, what does Solomon conclude? Well, for that, you have to come back next week to find out. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that we were destined and purposed for so much more than work and education. We thank you, God, that even though we may feel like Sisyphus rolling that boulder up every day to see it roll down again, even though we feel like that, God, we are so much unlike him because we have you. We have you at the center of our lives. God, we have you who has made us to serve you and to love you. You have made us for a greater purpose, God, to enjoy you forever. And so may we see that in God, may we cherish that truth, may we cherish you. May we, yes, love our work and work hard, but may it always be done for your glory finding great pleasure and satisfaction in that in which we were meant to find fulfillment. So please be with us, God, in our work, in our schooling, all these things. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.